Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, uh, our focus today is on what I would consider to be one of the most critical challenges and most significant opportunities we have in healthcare today. Uh, And you've heard me say this before on the podcast. I would go so far as to say that what we're going to focus on today is the holy grail of healthcare. What I'm talking about is our own behaviors are healthful as well as unhealthful behaviors. We know from the research that nearly 50% of the impact on our morbidity and our mortality is due to our own behavior. Healthy habits such as physical activity, appropriate nutrition, taking medications for acute and chronic disease, following up on appropriate treatments, preventive measures such as cancer screenings, and so on. Now, we also know that this is a very, very tough nut to crack. But one of the most exciting and impactful areas in this domain of behavior change is a field called behavioral economics. It's the science of how people make decisions and take action. And so we are so fortunate today to have on our program an accomplished leader in this field, Karen Horgan. Karen Horgan is a thought leader in the application of behavioral economics to healthcare. She co-founded Val Health, that's V-A-L Health. Uh, the leading health behavioral economics firm. As the uh, CEO, she has spearheaded the development of hundreds of behavior change programs that enable clients to overcome healthcare's biggest challenges. Prior to joining Val Health, Karen was the chief marketing officer at Keystone Strategy, a consulting firm affiliated with experts from Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, MIT, where she led global client engagements to develop R&D and innovation solutions for Fortune 500 companies, companies like Pepsi, Microsoft, and Johnson & Johnson. Karen holds an MBA from the Harvard Business School, a BA with honors from the University of Pennsylvania, and a BS with honors from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. She is regularly invited to speak on this topic, uh, and including uh, forums such as uh, South by Southwest and the World Economic Forum. So uh, without further ado, let me invite uh, Karen to the show. Karen, how are you today? I'm doing great, Zev, and thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. I'm so excited. This is such an important topic, and, and I'm really looking for a phenomenal update from you. So, Karen, before we, we dive in, um, could you just level set us in terms of some basic understanding of what is behavioral economics, um, what does it mean, and, and, you know, are there examples in our everyday life that give us a sense of, of behavioral economics? Well, that's a great question to kick us off. And as you said in your intro, behavioral economics is the science of understanding that we as humans are irrational. We have a bias to the present. For example, we oftentimes eat the chocolate cake when it comes around on the dessert tray, even if we said we wouldn't. We have an aversion to loss and regret. We overweight small probabilities, which is why as Americans, we spend over $70 billion a year on lotteries. And so what we can do with behavioral economics is you can harness this to drive behavior change. And we see this in our everyday life. For example, how do you make the right path the easy path? Well, when 401ks change to be defaulting people into contributing as opposed to having people opt in, the U.S. contribution rate for 401ks went from about 18% up to 80%. 
simply by changing the default because we're lazy. When the right path was the easy path, we take it. There are also messages that can be framed to compel action. If you travel like I do and you're on an airline site and it says one seat left at this price, they're creating a sense of scarcity and it nudges you to take change. Or there's a lot that can be done around harnessing social awarenesses to create new norms. You see this in your electricity bill. How often do you see you're doing better than or worse than your neighbors or you're using more energy or less than and there's a smiley face and a frowny face? All of those, whether you realize it or not, that is behavioral economics. It's using nudges to drive the preferred path and make that right path the easy path. Wow. Uh, you know, as I'm listening to you, and I suspect there are many more examples of behavioral economics at play in our everyday life, but it it seems that it, it is really prevalent. Um, it's used by other industries. And I guess it really sounds also like it could be used for good things, like getting us to use uh, electricity more prudently um, and, and saving on the electricity bills, saving for our 401ks, again, for the greater good, long-term good. Uh, or it could be used to get us to do things like purchase uh, tickets on, uh, you know, seats on on a plane at a higher price. So, so at least that's the way it's coming across. I think that's quite right. And what's interesting is it, this has been used extensively in consumer packaged goods, in finance, in retail, but it has not been adopted yet in healthcare. In healthcare, we tend to think that information alone is going to drive change, but in reality, we have a behavioral deficit not a knowledge deficit. People know they shouldn't be smoking, yet 68 million Americans still smoke. Women know they should be getting their mammograms, yet a third of us still don't do it. And so rather than trying to give people information to drive change, what we need to be doing is factoring in all these other elements that are being used in other parts of our life to improve our health and healthcare and to ultimately transform healthcare, particularly in the U.S. Yeah, you know, Karen, I think that is such an important point you're making. We have this belief that information or education equals uh, behavior change and or, or it equals engagement. And so if I, as a physician or I, as a nurse or I, as a PA, if I, uh, or some sort of medical, if I give a, a nutritionist, uh, you know, health coach, if I give you information, like this is the right thing to do to keep yourself healthy. This is the right thing to do to prevent cancer from happening or heart attack from happening or stroke from happening or, or diabetes from happening. If you do X, it'll, it'll help you or prevent. We believe, we have this fundamental belief that that is what is required. And that's sufficient for changing behavior. Of course, people are going to do it because it's the right thing. It's based on science and evidence and all that. But I, I think, and, and, and correct me if you disagree, but I actually think that is a profound and, and, and really important uh, to note fallacy in, in, in the way we do healthcare, that just knowing something doesn't make it happen. For, and, and it's true for providers too. We know that we should be putting, uh, making sure that our patients get these certain tests. We know that they shouldn't be getting other things. And yet that translation from knowing to doing is a big, big divide. And, and so what, what do you think about that? Is that, I mean, does that drive with what you're saying? That's exactly the, the, the issue. It's that we think that, that that's that knowledge gap versus behavioral gap. And we think that it's that people are not taking care of themselves. People are not managing their chronic conditions. They're not doing their preventative screenings because they don't know about it. But that's not it. It's that we have made it difficult for people to do that. 
added in all kinds of layers mm-hmm. around requiring people, if you want to go get a colonoscopy, first you have to go to the PCP, you have to get a referral, then you have to go get your colonoscopy, et cetera. We've planned designs, use perverse incentives to get people to do certain behaviors around medication refills and around the cost of medication. So we have not made it easy for people. We have not given them the information framed in a right way. So for example, we know that if you were social beings, we know that we are influenced by losses more so than gains. And so even when we give that information, if we frame it in a certain way, we can drive a behavior change. So for example, we worked with one client who was trying to increase scheduling appointments online on a portal. Something that might sound trivial, but ultimately it shows patient engagement because they're using the portal, they're getting their their screenings done and their appointments done. And we had one set of emails that was just their standard email and the other said, you qualify and some other behavioral economics wording. And we got 4.9 times as many people to schedule appointments online when we used behavioral economics in framing the information as opposed to factually just saying you should be scheduling an appointment. And so it really comes down to that information alone isn't going to drive behavior change. Mm-hmm. So, so that makes me think of t- two questions. The first is what problems in, in, in patient care, in healthcare, uh, are you trying to solve using behavioral economics? That's the first question. And the second question is I'm, I'm, you know, deeply interested in, in you articulating some of the behavioral economics tools. Yeah. At the, at the end of the day, what we're trying to accomplish is improving health. Now that's the end goal. And, we get very specific and very detailed around how do you get there? And people who know me well know I'm always asking, well, what is the behavior you're trying to change? Or what is the behavior you're trying to motivate? Because if it is take your medication, well, the behavior might be get your meds filled or the behavior might be eat it with food and And so it's ultimately comes down to the specific tactical elements. And so within that, we've got many different tools that we can use. So there's a lot around choice architecture. So MedAdherence, some of the basics, which many of your listeners probably know is, you know, put the medicine near something that you naturally do every day. So put it near the keys to your car or near a coffee maker. So that way you've got the habit and a signal as opposed to having to create a new action in your morning routine around your medication adherence. Others, so there's a lot around the choice architecture, which comes into the using defaults, using opt-in, opt-out, using that ultimate environment to get people to take action. Mm-hmm. And when working with providers, for example, some of my, uh, one of my co-founders, Dr. David Ash, through the University of Pennsylvania and PedMend, they wanted to increase the rate of generic prescribing. And overnight, they changed the EMR at uh, – University of Pennsylvania uh, Medical Center, and generic prescribing went from on average 20, 30, 40% up to over 98% overnight by making the default the generics. So, and, and, we, and when you say that, so, so just, you know, through a whole bunch of phrases at us, like choice architecture and nudging <laughs> and defaults. And so these are, these are, these are real techniques. So when you say you made it the default there for the doctors to order generics, what does that mean? So in an EMR, the first item that is shown 
is that default. So whatever is at the top of the list is the default for what is going to be prescribed. And so we, and I've probably said this already, we as humans are lazy. We just like to take what's put in front of us. And so instead of the medications being listed in alphabetical order or some random order, the generic prescription, the generic drug was listed at the top of the the the, the pull-down menu. Therefore, the doctors just stuck with whatever was the first item on the list as opposed to having to search for it. And so that by the, when you think of defaults, it's what is that easy path that we're going to be going down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so if, if I wanted to, as a physician, order something else, I could order it. It just would take me extra clicks and extra time. And as you said, who has that time and why make life harder? So I'll just go with what's easy. And so you, that's right. And so you make the, the, the right thing to do, the easy thing to do. That's right. And we were not taking choice away. As you just said, the physician could go through and order a different medication, but physicians just like us, they're all lazy too. And so they went with the, with what was put in front of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, that's an interesting, I've, I've never heard a behavioral economist use the words lazy, but I think it's, um, probably, I'm not sure if that's an official, you know, behavioral economics term or not, but, but it's true and there's nothing wrong with it per se. It's just, it is what it is. I mean, life is hard, like life is hard, life is complicated. We've got tons of things to do. We're rushed. We've, you know, I think, I think this is also an issue of attention, you know, and so we've got only so much attention and so much energy to give. And so we, we generally will default to the thing that is easiest. And so now you mentioned choice architecture. Can you say a word yep. about that? What does that mean? Yeah, so choice architecture would be that common higher level element of which defaults would fit into. So choice architecture is really that environment in which someone is making a decision. So how do we change the order? It, that could be an example. Uh, if you go into details, When calorie labeling was introduced, for example, in New York City, people purchased essentially the same number of calories before and after. Our team within a Subway sandwich shop changed the order in which items were listed. So part of the day, low-calorie items were listed first, and the other part of the day, high-calorie items were listed first. And when low-calorie items were listed first, people purchased 25% fewer calories. So think about that. The information on caloric values didn't drive a change. Changing the order in which items were listed fundamentally shifted people's purchasing patterns. And that is because we are lazy. We pick number one, two, or three. How many of us go to page two on a Google search? And so ultimately that choice architecture has the elements of it under defaults or opt-in, opt-out. We doubled the rate at which participants joined into a diabetes management program by changing the words in a letter they received from a physician in which it said, I've already enrolled you in this program versus call us to enroll. When people were already enrolled, quote unquote, they followed through and actually participated in the program at a higher rate than when they had to sign up. But in reality, they still had to do the same activity of attending a meeting but the framing made a big difference. Mm -hmm. And so that environment is thinking of how do you make the right path, the easy path. So this is really, this is sort of designing your, the choice, choice architecture is this designing of choices, uh, even just 
you you know you were talking about the order of choices. What do you present first? Because people generally don't want to read a long list or a long menu. So if you put something up front, chances are more people will will order that. That's right. It's simplifying the design. It's thinking of which is the preferred path you want someone to be taking, and how do you make that preferred path the easy path for them to pursue. Now, what about there were some other techniques as I was reading through some of the literature. You mentioned scarcity. So this idea of uh, if you if you create a perception that there's not a lot of this, that it's scarce, a scarce resource, a scarce choice, people will want that. So could you say a word about that? I'm interested in that one. Yeah, so I think what you, you, you outlined there is, is spot on. It's that we don't like to be left behind. And scarcity would play off of that anticipated regret, the anticipated loss of I don't want to miss out on something. And so when there is a little of it available, I'm going to take action so I don't anticipate and I don't experience that regret and loss aversion. And so scarcity would be a tool that we would use in, for example, member-facing communications, or you would use in patient or provider-facing communications. Yeah, so you just used another term, which I've read in behavioral economics, this idea of loss aversion, that people are losing something is actually a much stronger motivator than gaining something. So if you tell me I'm going to lose uh, $5, that'll that's far more likely to get me to do something than if you say, hey, I'll give you $5 if you do that. Is that right? That, that's exactly it. And let me actually talk to you, uh, share with you some results of a, re- a recent walking program that we we ran. So we have two different types uh, of Al Health. We have two different types of financial incentive platforms. One is a contest in which people have a chance to win the uh, equivalent of, we'll say, five dollars a week if they've achieved their walking goals. And that five dollars is either a twenty dollar or two hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, depending on if they win a small prize or a large prize. And if their number was drawn and they hadn't completed their activity, they miss out on winning. But if their number was drawn and they had walked their steps, they would win the $25 or the $500, sorry, the $20 or the $250, depending on the program. Now, if you take that same dollar amount, average dollars per day, and you flip that on its head and you use it as a loss aversion, in which people are gifted $50 at the start of a month and they lose $10 each week if they don't walk their number of steps, we find that participation increases by 70% by simply making it a loss versus a potential gain. And an economist would say it's the same thing because it's the same dollar value. Mm But in behavioral economics, it's not because that anticipated loss and fearing that truly drives engagement. And I'm glad you brought this up because it highlights Kevin Volk, who you've had on your show before. Mm-hmm. He's famous for saying it's the design of the incentive matters more than the size. And he's one of our co-founders. And so that's one of the core principles as we think about anytime there's a financial incentive involved and in healthcare. Financial incentives are everywhere. They're from plan design. They're from wellness programs. They're in the co-pays, co-insurance, and the like. It's how do you design that incentive really will drive behavior change. And we can't overlook that and just think that people will respond. If you do X, I'll give you Y. That's very traditional. And so we need to factor in the losses and the gains and the other elements to drive the behaviors. 
Yeah, I think this is such a, again, so important in healthcare. And for the most part, I think it's not really done. I don't see this sort of level of design thinking, choice architecture thinking uh, when we try to move people, whether they be providers or staff or patients um, or populations to do the right thing, the healthful thing. I, I don't think we, we're thinking about this sort of behavior design approach that, that you and your colleagues are outlining. And I, I love that uh, quote by Dr. Volpe. I've never heard that before. Could you say that again? Yep. The design of an incentive matters more than the size. Wow, that's that's a take-home message. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, so, so we talked about defaults. We talked about choice architecture. What about this this issue? The, another one that I read is social proof. Can you say a word about social proof in that technique? Yeah, we we are social beings. We like others to see what we're doing, and we like to see what others are doing. I, I am not a big user of Facebook or social media and the like, but look at how all of that has taken off over the years. And again, that is used outside of healthcare. And so we know that when you want to drive engagement, whether it's in preventative screening or in medication adherence, if we know that others are doing it, we're more likely to try it and we're more likely to to continue to use it. So one example in which we use social proof was around accelerating telehealth adoption. It's a, a highly underutilized asset in the healthcare industry today, at least from my perspective. And we were working with an integrated payer provider that wanted to accelerate telehealth visits. And we created sound bites for physicians to use. Rather than going marketing to consumers, if a physician was scheduling a follow-up visit with a patient, the statement they would say was, other patients with your condition do their follow-up visits via phone or via video, and we find that that works well. And so creating the social norm that others are doing this increased telehealth visits 40% in the first 30 days. So it was a combination of a message from the physician, but the social proof that other patients are doing this made it sound like, oh, okay, other people are doing this. This must still be high quality care. It must be easy to do. It's something I should try. Wow, that's huge. And, you know, I think this uh, telemedicine, I think uh, everyone across the country is faced with this issue. We know that it's a, a phenomenal channel for communication. It increases access, it increases convenience for patients, it lowers the costs of care. It should be used way more than it is, and yet we're seeing a very, very slow adoption. And I wonder if it's, as you're pointing out, it's the way we are putting the choice architecture of the design, you know, again, knowing that it's the right thing to do for, for everyone, for doctors, for, you know, providers, for patients, uh, for the system, that's not translating into the behavior. And so um, it's remarkable that by using this behavioral economics technique of social proof, you saw such dramatic increases in such a short period of time in the adoption of, of the use of, of telehealth. I, I love this. You're, you're okay. This is so much fun. I'm, I'm, I'm going down my list of behavioral economics techniques that I've always wanted to understand better. So the next one I have on my list is anchoring. So could you say something about that? So anchoring is a very unique concept in that when we make a decision, our mind starts from where it left off. And so 
used car salesmen will use this all the time, anchor you on a certain price point. And then if it comes down or above or below, you're like, well, I started at $20,000. And so therefore I understand. And one of the, uh, so when we want people to know what a cost is of care, you can anchor, people are anchored on, for example, $20 as a copay. And then if they have a high deductible health plan and suddenly they see $500, that just sounds really foreign to them because they always assumed care costs $20, even though in reality it was $500, they just never saw the full cost. And so that anchoring can be used effectively in communications to help people understand what they should be doing as well as what costs should be. And so how would you, how would you use that in, have you used that in helping um, change your behavior? Yeah, so it's quite interesting. We've used anchoring in some of our communications. We recently worked with a digital health, uh, digital diabetes management company who is trying to get more patients, uh, more members to enroll. And we developed a direct mail communication, one direct mail to be sent to the home to both uh, employees and their spouses. And we did a fair amount of anchoring on what the cost used to be and what the cost would be with this program. And we got a 9% increase in enrollment through that communication. And it was one communication that drove a 9% increase in enrollment. And if we focus on that 9% for a moment, we want it to be higher, but that's still a huge number. Because in healthcare, we know that a one or 2% increase in anything is celebrated. Yet what we're able to achieve by using anchoring social proof and the like is magnitudes higher in, in, in the output. And the other comment on anchoring it into your questions here is we rarely use just one tool in isolation. It's rarely just that you're using social proof or that you're just using anchoring. It's all of these feed off of each other because of the irrationality that humans have. It's not as if it's just social proof is going to drive change. It's the social proof and anchoring on a number. Because if we use social proof that 30% of people get their medications refilled, most people will say, oh, no one's doing that. I don't need to be getting my meds refilled. If on the other hand, it's 80% of people get their medications filled, then that becomes the social norm. So we have to think about these different tools and principles, oftentimes together, not always just black and white in isolation. Right, that makes sense. So I, I want to ask you this question. Um, I've got a couple more behavioral economics techniques uh, that I want to ask about, but, but I think the bigger question is this. This, you know, it looks like it works. I mean, the research tells us that these behavioral economic principles and tools work when applied to healthcare in terms of changing behaviors. So my first question, the first thought that comes to mind is, as I'm thinking about this and, and listening to you is, why aren't we using this more? Maybe we are. I'm just not aware of it. I know, obviously, it's happening at the University of Pennsylvania because you've got a major center there, probably the best center in the country, if not in the world, in behavioral economics. And those are, you know, your partners, uh, Val Health, uh, David Ash, and, and, and Dr. Kevin Volt. So it's happening there. It may be happening at a few other places, but it would seem to me it would be, it should be, we should be using this more uh, because behavior change is so important. But that actually made me think of the second question, which is, why is this important? Why is behavior change so important, particularly right now in healthcare? So I'd like you, you could take either question first, the issue of why behavioral economics is so important. And if it is so important, why isn't it being used more? 
So I'll start with, with its importance in, in the industry today. And I couldn't be more passionate about how important it is. Because as we all know, in the U.S., we're clearly undergoing incredible transformation in healthcare. We have new payment models, new technologies, new care settings. And across all of this, we need to acknowledge that to accomplish the transformation, behavior change is required across all stakeholders, from consumers to members to patients to providers, staff. And as we've been talking about so far in this podcast, we know change is difficult. We're all stuck in our own ways, and by nature, we're really bad at change. And so behavioral economics, as we've been pointing out, is really that solution to nudge and motivate change. But, but it is not being used in healthcare. And there are many reasons that we think it's not being used. And it's mostly because healthcare just moves at a glacial pace. It is extremely slow to innovate. And we oftentimes think if we just try the same thing over and over, that will suddenly drive change. But where we are seeing adoption is in those organizations that want to be innovative, in those organizations that either recognize that they're not hitting their dashboard metrics and they need to do focused elements like I need to close care gaps this year or I need to get my population to download an app. Or you have those who I would say are leapfrogging, which are innovators outside of healthcare who are coming in or new startups or skunk works or new groups within established organizations that are trying to change the way, for example, care is delivered, or they're trying to change the way that we message and drive behavior change. And in those organizations, we're starting to see people really asking about behavioral economics and really understanding that there is a proven science because we are a science-driven industry, and that science can help achieve what it is we've been trying to do. To your point, in the past, in healthcare delivery, from the point of view of provider groups, hospital systems, integrated delivery networks, even payers, insurance companies, including the federal government, CMS, we haven't really cared if people follow through. They pay us for the service we provide. And so in that kind of model, and of course, I'm referring to the fee-for-service model, patient behavior and perhaps even provider behavior is not all that important. So I think what's happening now is, is, as you pointed out, there are substantial changes happening in healthcare and they're actually coming pretty quickly. It's not going to take a decade for these changes to come. Some people say they're going to happen in the next you know, couple of years or, or the next five years, but they're coming and they're coming pretty quickly. And those changes are number one around competition. So there's increased competition for patients. And as, as, and so I think from a, from the perspective of, you know, you even shared some of these examples of how does a system engage patients? How does the system grow, get more patients? How does the system retain patients? How do you become the provider of choice, of preference? And so I think that, you know, from that perspective, this is behavior change. And so if you have the tools of behavioral economics on your side, I mean, I'd rather be on a team personally that had that, those sets of tools, if I was competing for patient's attention and patient retention and patient preference and loyalty. The other part is around uh, the issue of cost. And as we move and shift into value-based payment, where now the payers, whoever they may be, whether they be employers or the federal government or commercial payers, they're looking at how well providers manage costs and as well as quality. And so it's a balance of cost and quality. 
And so a lot of that is dependent, well, in fact, all of it is dependent on behavior, whether it be the provider's behavior in terms of what tests they're ordering. Are they ordering inappropriate tests? Are they making appropriate or inappropriate referrals? Are they doing appropriate or inappropriate high-cost procedures like orthopedic procedures uh, and you know, back surgeries, et cetera? Um, you know, so, so all that is about the provider behavior. And of course, on the side of the patient, there's behaviors too that influence utilization and appropriate cost of care. And so, and you're getting now uh, graded on quality and you're also uh, getting paid on how well you manage the cost. And so all that is around behavior. And I think as we shift into a more competitive uh, value-based uh, market in healthcare, behavior is going to be increasingly important because how we get paid is going to be based on that, uh, on those behaviors. And so I, I think increasingly we're going to see people saying, well, how do we influence behavior? And there's not much out there that is as powerful from my perspective as, as the tools you're talking about. And, and, you know, people talk a lot about digital, right? And I think people mistake digital for behavior and digital may be more convenient. It can be not necessarily, but it can be, but digital isn't the same as behavior and digital is for sure not the same as behavior economics. So I just, I said a lot and I apologize, but I'm, 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 you got me, you got me going. So what do you think about what I said? And, and, and do you, do you agree? Do you have a different way of looking at it? Uh, definitely thought provoking and in alignment because we have not been, quote unquote consumers of healthcare. As a patient or a member, we just used healthcare sporadically when we needed to. We didn't foot much of the bill. And then as you pointed out, the providers were incentivized through fee for service to do as much testing and as much as they wanted. And suddenly across the whole industry, that's getting shaken up. It's suddenly acknowledging that costs can't rise by a percent, two percent a year, and that everything we're doing as Americans, we're still becoming less and less healthy. We've got rising obesity rates. We have rising diabetes, comorbidities. All of that, whatever we're doing, is costing a lot of money and isn't working. And if we are throwing technology at it, we know that technology alone isn't going to drive change because many people have lifestyle conditions and just suddenly giving them a Fitbit isn't going to turn a couch potato into a 5K, 10K, or marathoner. And even giving remote monitoring cuffs, how do you get people to actually use that blood pressure cuff on a daily basis or to test their blood sugars as they're supposed to? And so with all of that, it is the fundamental behavior change in how we practice, but also how we engage with our own health and how we engage with the system. And I think it's important to recognize that my own health is different than engaging with the system. Because if I take care of myself, then ultimately I need less of the system. And that works well. And in order to take care of myself, I need to be motivated and just giving me those tools isn't going to accomplish that. Yeah, that's really helpful. On your website, you actually start off, it's really impressive. Uh, you say something about, we are the chief engagement officers for healthcare. We are the chief yeah. engagement officers for healthcare. I've never seen uh, a website uh, homepage say something like that. What What do you mean by that? And why, why is that important? So engagement has many different definitions for different people. When we think of engagement, it's not that people just sign up for a program. It's not that people just say, yes, they're going to do something. Many of our organizations we interact with, are, when we ask, how are you going to measure engagement? They're like, oh, someone has logged on in the past 90 days or someone has signed up for our program. 
And then when we push and we say, well, what is it that you're accomplishing in that this, the touch point that happens every 90 days? The answer is very fuzzy. And so for us, engagement is that people are doing what it is they need to be doing to take care of themselves. And it could be preventing sickness by being healthy or by doing their preventative screenings. It could be condition management programs. We've been working extensively with Dr. Vendell Washington, the Chief Medical Officer of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Louisiana, and driving, quote unquote, engagement in their diabetes management programs. And engagement there is people taking a call with a nurse and then following the personalized care plan that they develop with a nurse. So that's one example of engagement. Another example could be working with Sutter Health to get people to use the patient portal because that is how Sutter Health would look at patients being engaged with the brand of Sutter Health. And that's where we've gotten people to read more emails. For example, 2.6 times more people read emails when we've written them for Sutter Health. And so that engagement will differ across the system, but ultimately it's around people taking individual action and responsibility and doing what it is that they should be doing. So it's really it's really engagement with one either engagement with the healthcare system with a healthcare organization or just engagement with your own personal health. That's right. Yeah, that's that's right. great. What do you you know you, there's another phrase you use you call it the last mile of healthcare delivery and what do you mean by that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because if you think about a lot of what you've been talking about or what you'll read every day about healthcare got a new digital health startup here, you've got an urgent clinic popping up there, you have a new plan design um, being offered to employees. Well, all of that is being put out there, but what it's not doing is it's not connecting with the end user. So it's not connecting with the consumer, it's not connecting with the patient, or it's not connecting with the provider. And that's because it's not being framed correctly, or it's not being made the right, the easy path to get there. And so behavioral economics will bridge the gap between all of the solutions and the healthcare system that's out there and the right people that are supposed to be attracted to it and help those people use all of those solutions to drive that engagement that we just talked about. And how do you get people to do that connection? As you're talking, again, I'm just, I have this picture. We're spending so much money in healthcare I think providers and 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 their staffs and uh, in healthcare are trying to do the right thing. They know what the right thing is, and they're trying to get patients to to engage in that. I think people, for the most part, want to be you know engaged in their own health and wellness. And so, and we throw so much at this, right? There's so much literature. There's so much information that you know people talk about data. People talk about analytics, as we were talking about before. All these digital implementations and deployments. But I think we we you know, we fundamentally are missing such a, you know, uh, it's it's so obvious and, and so practical. And, you know, this idea that it's really just about people and it's about people's behavior. And, um, you know, I think in the past, and, and this is not something new in healthcare, we've, we've, you know, been talking about, I mean, I've been in healthcare for three decades. And, you know, even when I got trained and, and was a training physician teaching others, we talk about behavior, but I think the what's exciting about this is that we've been using models of behavior that I, I think are a bit outdated, and um, at least they they really 
haven't been all that effective. And I don't know that they've been all that scalable either. And what's exciting, I think, about behavioral economics, um, every time I come back to it, every time I think about it, every time I speak to experts like yourself, is that we have a set of tools that can be deployed through multiple channels, right? It could be as simple as as letters even being sent out, hard copy, you know, snail mail stuff. It could be, you know, digital uh, channels, uh, emails and texts, and it could be programmed into chatbots. It could be programmed into wearables. It could be, you know, so it, it can it can work through any level of sophistication of communication. But but you're really what what's what's exciting about this is you're taking a science of behavior change that is cutting edge and that could really be deployed and even to a certain extent automated. And you're, you, you, we have the opportunity to really make it just an integral and ubiquitous part of healthcare delivery. And yet we are not doing that. That's the downside or that's the frustrating side. And so it's, it's exciting. Um, there's just so much opportunity to really affect so much change. And I, I know you're working with, as you mentioned, with, uh, with uh, Dr. Washington and, and at the Blues in, in, in Louisiana. I, I suspect you're working with other payers as well. But are you seeing, are, I mean, are people beginning, especially with the changes we talked a few minutes ago, the change in payment and, and the, the uh, increasing competition in healthcare, are you seeing people beginning, as, are the light bulbs going on? Is, is, are people beginning to adopt this and, and use this or are we still, we're still not quite there? What's, what's, what's the market like out there? We're, we're really in the early stages. So about five years ago, many people didn't know the term behavioral economics. Mm-hmm. Now people know it and it's a buzzword. But what we find is they don't know what to do with it. They're like, I choose behavioral economics. and But then it's, well, what does that mean? What do I do with it? And what we oftentimes encourage them is to start with something very focused and simple, which is a behavioral economics tool, Right. Use simplification, avoid choice overload. And there we find people will say, that makes sense. And so oftentimes those projects are around communications or user flow on an app. And it could be something that the challenges they'll try and solve are I need to close a gap in care. Or I need people to select a certain health plan. Or I need people to enroll in a condition management program or download an app. And something that is a real problem they're facing today, and they've recognized that, well, what I've been doing hasn't been working. And so let me try using this new science for behavioral economics. Where we're not seeing it as much where we would love to see it more is more in care transformation. And how do you fundamentally change people's experiences with the system? So recent work that Dr. David Ash has been doing at Penn is around a hypertension model and creating an environment where patients don't have to go in every three months to their physician to get their blood pressure checked or get their meds changed, but rather shake that on its head and empower the patient with a remote blood pressure monitoring cuff, a text message system with a nurse in which on a daily basis, the patient texts blood pressure to the nurse then the nurse can modify the meds as needed, and then the patient doesn't have to come back in. And what they found is they accelerated the time frame to become normotensive from about 12 months to anywhere from a week to four weeks. And that's because behavioral economics was used at all stages of that process. Make the right path the easy path. Why does a patient need to come in to get their blood pressure tested? They can do that on their own. 
Why do we have to wait three months for the patient to get tested when they can get a quick win and get daily feedback with messages from a nurse? And then how do you create that whole system rather than them having to go to a special pharmacy to get their meds, have that available at the time of getting into the program? And so all of that fundamentally shifts care and shakes up the whole delivery model, which brings together things you've been talking about, Zev, from technology to new, new types of, of communications. And that's where behavioral economics should be used more. But we are happy if people are starting with the basics because we know then that over time will expand. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great, thank you for that. That's a, yeah. that a nice picture. And I, I love your attitude. <laughs> so where, where, and you, I think you, you may have responded to this, but where do you, where do you see this going? I mean, is it, I, I love the picture of this becoming a part of care redesign. It's just an integral part of care, how care is delivered. So is that what you see happening in the next three to five years, or is that going to happen sooner than that? I think it's, it would not be sooner than that, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. We look at the early adopters and we look at how behavioral economics is still being used, I'd say, as rifle shots. So it's being used to solve a specific pain. Mm-hmm. What we are trying to encourage our, our clients or organizations whenever they're out there speaking, we want people to start thinking behavioral economics in every part of their day. Mm-hmm. We want them to start saying, as I'm writing an email to my coworker, mm-hmm. how should I be changing the order? How do I need to bring in social proof or anchoring to let them know what others are doing? As we think about plan designs and as you think about whether we're using copay or coinsurance, people don't understand coinsurance. And so in absence of information, they're likely to think that that cost is going to be less than something that is a, an actual amount they would know on copay. And so in the next three years, I still see behavioral economics being used more for rifle shots and solving specific problems. But to be honest, that's a huge win. When we look at the, the billions of the, the challenges that we're facing in healthcare and the rising cost, we can't lower cost by half. In the, in the country in the next three to five years. But we can start to whittle away at $100 million a time. It adds up to a billion. And so we can take those wins and feel that we're making a success. Yeah, you're painting. I love the picture of currently where we are is a few rifle shots here and there, and maybe it's starting to build to more rifle shots. And But now you're really talking about the picture you have for the future is where it just becomes an ingrained part of how we deliver healthcare, you know, from soup to nuts. It just becomes part of the built-in design. And I, I think, you know, it's interesting. I, I think as, as design thinking itself becomes more embedded in healthcare delivery, which I suspect is going to happen because the uh, more competitive stakeholders are beginning to realize that and use that. Yeah. I think that it'll sweep in this behavior design you know, kind of choice architecture thinking with it as well. Um, I think that's right. Yes. Yeah, right. Well, this has been, this has been, I, again, I, I do have so many more questions. I even have, I still haven't gotten through my list of behavioral health techniques that I want to ask you about. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pick your brain. I, I have a feeling we'll be talking anyway, but um, it's such a delight speaking with you. Do you have any final, and you don't have to have a comment, but do you have any sort of want to give you a chance? Do you have any sort of final 
a message you want to leave uh, the listeners with uh, something to remember about bowel health or behavioral economics? Uh, my specifics would be just challenge yourself to think every day, how do I make the right path the easy path? How do I be strategic in the words I'm using? Because ultimately, this is what's going to drive care transformation in this country. And your listeners are those that are at the forefront. And if they can start to bring behavioral economics in to move beyond just a single rifle shot and really try and accelerate that time frame, then that's a huge win for all of us. So thank you. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Thank you. And uh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll I just I will turn to uh, the audience members and and every, people who have been listening to the podcast know that I'm compelled to end each podcast with um, a message to those of you out there who are taking care of patients each and every day, uh, the providers of care, uh, and those of you who are supporting the providers of care. This is really the hard and such important work that you're doing and uh, I and we appreciate you for it. So thank you. And um, I hope you've really enjoyed this episode as much as I have. Um, and uh, I hope to have Karen and her colleagues on again sometime soon in the next few months. And I just want to say until next time, be well. Thank you.